and welcome back to another episode of Crossover Commerce. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is my corner of the internet where I bring the best and brightest in the Amazon and e-commerce space. Before we get started on today's special episode, I want to go ahead and just give a quick shout out to our presenting sponsor, Ping Pong Payments. Ping Pong Payments is helping sellers keep more of their hard-earned money by sending and receiving funds internationally through the technology that they've and partnerships that they have established, whether it be sending money to different suppliers, manufacturers, distributors, VAs, even just international businesses in general. If you're a B2B business or an entrepreneur that's trying to save money, time, and effort and putting more margins back to your bottom line, check out Ping Pong Payments. It's free to sign up to use. Uh, all you have to do is just go to usa.pingpongx.com forward slash podcast to get access to all of our past episodes, plus signing up for free today. It's really effective and really easy to use to make your business more profitable, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, in the teaser, this is episode 195. We're trucking along. If you're a fan of the podcast, you know that we go live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter, and that you can ask your questions for myself or our guest on today's stream of our podcast. But we're going closer to 200. We'll be celebrating that next Thursday. So a week from today, mark that on your calendar. More details to come. But today is really special because I have two gentlemen who have put their minds their money and all their research and data points together to look at the space that everyone loves talking about. That's the aggregator space. Yes, that's right. We're talking about once again here on this podcast, the space that keeps on raising funds. Even today, we'll even talking about just the news that broke earlier a few hours ago in terms of what it looks like for the Amazon and e-commerce space. So without further ado, um, the data report that they put out, wanted to make sure that we talk about that today and go a little bit more in detail on the podcast today. So without further ado, I want to bring on to Crossover Commerce from Global Wild Advisors, Joe Hogg and Rob Salmon. Guys, welcome to Crossover Commerce today. Thank you. Appreciate you having us. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, wanted to go ahead and just give a, for people who are not familiar with Global Wild Advisors, we of course have Chris, but both of you um, are other entities both in the retail or excuse me the research as well as the executive director space so maybe joe for you first maybe introduce us to uh the, uh introduce yourself to the audience and maybe um what you do over at global wilder advisors and uh kick it from there sure sure so i uh i'm a managing partner at global wilder advisors and for um you know for the folks that don't know who we are we're a lower middle market investment bank focused on the space focused on um helping people um, with uh, the people that are in the consumer space uh, do transactions. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the work that we do is with, uh, with M&A, you know, we're strictly sell side. Uh, we help a lot of Amazon sellers sell their companies. You know, we, we also help people raise money as well. So, um, so that's, that's pretty much our role. You know, I've, I've been in, I've been in banking, capital markets, M&A my entire life for the most part. I, I started out of school. So, it's uh it's about 30 years in the making you know um we we originally got started as a as a different entity uh as providium group and providium advisors where we were really just taking core investment banking expertise down market to uh to the lower middle market space um and, you know we found that there were just a lot of smaller companies that just really needed that core investment banking expertise uh structured transaction expertise. And about two years ago, a lot of people were coming to us that were digitally native. They were selling strictly off of Amazon or uh, some combination of Amazon and website, maybe a little bit of brick and mortar. And we recognized the need to, um, to focus exclusively on this deal flow because it was becoming so prolific with respect to what we were doing. So that was the genesis of Global Wired Advisors. And, you know, the timing was ideal obviously because just as we were getting going um the pandemic hit and that's obviously led to a transformation in e-commerce so it's uh it's been quite busy um the you know the deal flow we were looking at on the providium side of the house slowed down because most of that was you know more traditional and um we began focusing our attention almost exclusively on on the digitally native um deal flow that that we work with today in global wired so that's a little bit about us and about Global Wired, Rob. If you if you want to give a give a Ryan and yeah, the thanks. audience your background. Thanks, Joe. So I came from a institutional equity research background. I spent the better part of the, the past two decades at uh, Wolf Research. Before that, um, uh, Deutsche Bank, and was looking at kind of the the huge growth that we were seeing from 
small and medium-sized businesses uh, who are moving their goods uh, on UPS, on FedEx. And this is a market which I'm absolutely fascinated by. And I'm really excited to um, to spearhead the, the research effort over here at, at Global Wired. And, you know, our, our first report that I'm sure we'll be discussing, uh, you know, quite a bit, and it is actually the topic du jour, given uh, the half a billion dollar raise that we saw this morning, uh, are, are the aggregators. And, you know, we are looking at everything within the e-commerce space, and we're going to be putting out a lot more research. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to help us help sellers, help uh, institutional investors get their hands around this uh, just really exciting space. Absolutely. It's a it's a market that there's a lot of love opportunity, a lot of growth, whether it be as brands, as uh, SaaS companies, but also as just service providers in general. But you guys put out a really intriguing report, and that's why I reached out to see if we could talk and go through some of the numbers. Numbers don't lie. Numbers are factual. They're, they're something that's not an opinionated matter, but they tell a story of where you are as, as a snapshot, right? So that's why I wanted to look at today. And as, as Rob alluded to earlier, if you're listening or watching this of, what do you mean what happened today? Well, I um, just want to add to the stream kind of a little bit of a nugget. If you haven't, if you're not watching the news and you're busy running your e-commerce business, which is a good thing, uh, hopefully you're being successful. There is a uh, there's a great piece in Marketplace Pulse that keeps up to date on this, as well as just hey having a, a Google alert out of Seller X. Um, there, as you can see in the the snapshot that I took right there, the screen grab of a now becomes a billion dollar entity, and we've had them on the podcast before. They raised a cool five hundred million dollars. As of today, that was announced. Uh, another big one where you might think, where did my hearing $500 million? It seems to be a very popular number. Uh, Heyday, about less than a month ago, also raised about $555 million to scale their D2C businesses. So again, just to date, um, in just 2021 alone, if you're thinking, man, it seems pretty consistent, you're right. There's about a billion dollars every single month that's being raised across multiple aggregators in the space. And this will be a slide that will reference um later on in the show just in terms of numbers but people are keeping score at home and i say keeping score we have a lovely uh slide here that just sees shows where people are currently today uh, from our, again our friends over at marketplace pulse of two entities are pretty close to or three entities are close to a billion dollars plus but you have quite a collection of people in terms of the top i'm going to call this the top 60 or so companies that are raising funds again anywhere from 3.4 billion dollars to 20 billion dollars that being said gentlemen you did some deep diving. You did a little look behind the numbers. You talked to these individuals. Where do we starting from here? Uh, first of all, what, what was the genesis and the point of this report? Is it for yourself or is it something to educate in the space itself? Well, that's that's exactly right. It was really designed to to educate the space. And you know what we've what we found um, in in being active in the space over the last two to three years is that. There, there really isn't a great deal of rigorous analytical work being done. And, you know, we felt that 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 was kind of a piece missing, you know, on the institutional side, you know, it's 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 very prolific, you know, um, a very rigorous analytical um, angle, you know, is is applied pretty much to to most most business decisions, in particular, large business decisions. So so we felt that we felt that this was something that just needed to be applied to the space. And, and that's that's really where we're coming from with, with respect to building out research at Global Wired Advisors. And this, again, this is our first report, our first thematic. We'll be coming out with a lot more, but clearly the the topic du jour um, for most 3P sellers is is aggregators and and what what aggregators are doing, where where the industry is headed. Um, what are some of the things they, you know, are struggling with? Where where do we see um, valuations going as a result of involvement of aggregators in the space? So, so we felt it would be useful to put all that together in a um, in a fairly rigorous report, and you know, and provide it provide it to to people that were interested. And Absolutely. I guess that's a, yeah, that's where it's come from. Yeah, and for people who might not know where the report is, again, uh, we've we've uh, put a link in the comment section. So if you're watching us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube, or 
Twitter. Uh, again, you can download the report. I'm going to point directly to you got your guys' website, uh, globalwiredevicesearch.com, and it's in the research section. Um, fantastic resource to go to. Just putting your name and information, I think it's just the email address. Uh, but I have downloaded it. I've already looked through it, as, as mentioned before. Um, and we're going to be sharing some of the findings that you guys did, if that's okay with you. We'll just Perfect. go right into it and uh, kind of uh, break it down in the capacity of which you presented. So um, you, you said more, Joe, Where are, is, is this an access to all of that list of aggregators of how many of those people are you researching? Is it something that they're opening willing to give this information or is this something that you maybe have to pull teeth and kind of put your own spin upon it as well? Yeah, there's there's a little bit of that. You know, we we had an opportunity to talk to uh, a number of different people in the space, and you know, we we triangulated a bit ourselves as well. You know, the the report is really, I guess, an accumulation of of what we learned in in talking to people in you know again triangulating around topics where you know disclosure would be a little full disclosure would be a little bit tough. Um, also including what we see in the space from the sell side. And, you know, we, we feel that it's a pretty representative um, depiction of, of kind of where, where aggregators are today. So. Gotcha. So yeah. the report was published on, I want to say what, November 15th. So again, yep. a snapshot on November 15th, this is as of a few weeks ago. So for people in the space, we're going to just walk through, let me zoom out a little bit so we can all keep a holistic view on everything. So Ryan, it's amazing in terms of the capital raised, Subsequent to the report, an incremental 1.7 billion has been raised by yeah. aggregators. <laughs> yeah, there's just more reports should be uh, published. Three it weeks. sounds like yeah. if you're in the financial world, uh, every new report there needs to be another billion dollars that's injected into space. Um, but I, I think it's also important to note that a lot of this money gets skewed into what the top, uh, I would say, ten. I'm just going to call it ten uh, businesses that are raising funds. Again, going back to that that snapshot I showed earlier, a billion dollars at once was just raised by Thrasio alone. Um, but there, there's so many different businesses of $50 million here, $100 million there, uh, massive amounts of money being injected into space. Can you, it, does this report go under why this is happening now? Like, why is this the right time to be doing all this? It does. It does. That's, that's really the conclusion of the report. And the, you know, the amount of money that's flowing into the space is flowing there for a reason, right? The, you know, the investors, mostly venture capital that are, you know, that are aggressively moving on this opportunity, see, um, see a significant payoff. They see a significant payoff primarily in the form of uh, an eventual public securities transaction. And, you know, today, most, um, really all aggregators are effectively marking their portfolios to model because, we don't really have much of a much of a you know a public um, mark to market proxy really. Eventually, though, we believe that that an aggregator is going to get over the fence, so to speak, is going to be able to pull off a public securities transaction, go public effectively via IPO, and you're going to see a significant increase in value. And we refer to that in the report as the prize, and we feel that most aggregators are really are really driving toward this toward this goal of you know acquiring 3p sellers building portfolios building revenue streams and eventually effectively getting into the public securities domain and having a consumer products good multiple applied to what they've built which will see again a significant jump in valuation because you'd be going from you know, five, six multiple today, basically acquisition multiple to 15 or 20. So it's, it will be quite lucrative. And then once, uh, once that takes place, once we, once we do see an aggregator eventually pull off this particular, uh, this particular trade, we will have a proxy to mark everyone else to market. We will have a multiple to track. We will have effectively a stock price to track and, the rest of the space will see a, a an uptick in valuation, right? And then that in turn will lead to you you create somewhat of a virtuous cycle. That in turn will lead to more money flowing into the space, right? That will lead to probably more acquisitions, and that will lead to probably more um, more public deals given the success of the first one. So, so we we believe that that is 
you know, that is the the primary reason that that aggregators are really raising as much money as they're raising as quickly as they're raising it, because this, um, you know, this this lightning bolt is eventually going to strike. And once it uh, once it does, it's, uh, you know, it's going to reorder how people think about, um, you know, CPG. In general, it's going to reorder how think people think about Amazon and the three P seller universe in general. I think it's going to be quite an event, actually, and we're probably not that far away. It's probably a, a 2022 event where we do see an aggregator um, go public in some fashion. Absolutely. Well, and we know, um, in, at least it's been reported that there's been close close to happening in in terms of Thrasy have been doing it, and they've they've mm-hmm. held back and or either delayed it uh, for. A number of reasons again publicly they're not going to disclose it so with that being said a lot of things i hear that unpack there and a lot of people that are talking about and i've said multiple times that this is this is the first wave like people think that this is a lot of money being poured which it is 12 billion dollars is not something to to shy away from uh but in the space because it's so open it's green and it's it's now being shown love i would say you're telling me that this is the first wave. What does the second wave look like in this capacity? Maybe Rob, can you can you paint a picture for us of what when we know we're in that second wave, or is this is this, are we still writing this like first wave, if you will, of the first institutional money coming in? I mean, taking a step back, we are now seeing brands develop on on digital platforms. Historically, you came came to market, and CPG companies would aggregate several of these these individual brands into a larger conglomerate purchasing uh, companies that, that developed a product that, that was really unique. And, and we're seeing sellers have incredible success on Amazon. And when I think about just how big the retail market is in aggregate, $12 billion, $13 billion, it's nothing in, in terms of the capital that's been raised. And Joe was alluding to earlier about the, this opportunity of coming to market and, and being a publicly traded company. There is also just the benefits of growing a firm in size and your valuation will increase from that five to six to a traditional private equity multiple is like 10 times EBITDA. So aggregators who are successful, and and I'm going to use that term very, very loosely because today we're seeing aggregators invest in, invest in buying these digitally native brands, but tomorrow it might be private equity who is serving that same role of, of purchasing multiple um, online native consumer product brands. Right. So in, in this report, I, I guess the best place it's, it's an extensive report and the, I, I want to make sure that we focus on it. it's a 21 page report. Where do we need to start? Where, where's the best place that people, if you're a brand, a seller need to just start, uh, and going through it? Is there a page or is there an exhibit? Um, again, <laughs> I think I heard the talk with, uh, you guys and Stephen Pope of feels like a court document that we're trying to make a case for, uh, somebody to to be on the hook or off the hook uh, here but you have so many different awesome exhibits and examples here where do we start well let's start at the beginning it's always been told it's always yeah, best to start yeah, at the beginning right bad. so well, close, close to the beginning maybe, uh, yeah exactly yeah maybe page three page three is okay. probably um is a good and, and that spot. first chart really says it all where do consumers start buying it's on the amazon amazon platform it, yeah. It's incredible how many customers start their search of what they want to buy on the Amazon platform. And it, as a result, it creates a really nice virtuous cycle um, and, and is why sellers want to be starting their business on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a good point. You know, if you if you look at exhibit three um, insofar as GMV on Amazon, relative to the to the next closest channel shopify it's a pretty big gap and you know it's it's a it's a pretty big gap for a reason really amazon has made scaling a, a young brand a new brand quite easy the the tools that you have through amazon are historic in nature with respect to being able to build uh launch build an online brand and scale an online brand using um, FBA, using standardized um, advertising, PPC, you can you can probably, this is probably the fastest in history that you can grow a, um, 
grow a consumer products company. You know, so so the Amazon platform, by its very nature, has has created the um, obviously created the aggregator opportunity. But you know, this is really a good a good chart that <clears throat> shows the importance of Amazon, the dominance of Amazon. You know, insofar as the innovation that they've brought to the marketplace and based on what we have seen, it's really going to be a difficult gap to close for Shopify, eBay, Walmart, just because of where Amazon is headed. Amazon has recognized that being a service company is, is really more profitable than, than being a, you know, essentially a, you know, consumer goods company selling directly to consumers via say the one P model, the, um, you know, the service side of the house, you know, fulfilled by Amazon side of the house is uh, is really the future of the company by our, our estimation. They are quickly evolving into, um, you know, less of a product company and more of a service company, you know, whether it's, you know, through the through the FBA platform or, or through AWS. Um, so that that trend is going to continue. And as it continues, we we believe that that gap probably grows as they continue to focus more on, you know, on 3P sellers and a little bit less on their on their own stuff. Now, that doesn't mean they won't, you know, again, look to optimize the cost of PPC or FBA. You're, we're always going to be dealing with the the algorithms designed to maximize Amazon's profits. But um, but I think that in general, it's it's going to get even easier. You know, recently we 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 ran into a lot of um, you know, inventory constraints with respect to Amazon's ability to to hold um, product and move product, but given the investments that they've made over the course of the last year, they've almost doubled. I think more than doubled fulfillment capacity. So that's right, they more than doubled. Yeah, so that's that's astounding when you think about how big Amazon already was. You know, prior to making those investments, it's even more astounding when you realize that they did that during the pandemic when. We had a shortage of labor. We had a shortage of building materials. We had a slowdown in lockdowns and, you know, everything else. They effectively doubled the size of the company. And again, that was that was done primarily to keep up with growth in, you know, in the three piece side of the house. So 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 that's an important chart that that gap is uh, is quite a is quite a commanding position, given where the company is today and given where the company is headed. And. You know, there's a lot of talk about how that gap is going to be closed and the, the things that, that Walmart is doing and the focus on, you know, DTC away from Amazon and Shopify. But, you know, I, I think that the gap probably, at least in the short run, grows a little bit more. Absolutely. So that would be the first thing I would focus yeah. on. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I guess so... just to piggyback on what Joe just said, if you look at Exhibit 9, the, the gross merchandise value that is sold on Amazon went from 3% of 3P sellers when this company was founded to north of 60% today. And that growth is something that we think the th third party sellers are gonna continue to outpace the first party piece of Amazon, which kind of fills that services side uh, of the business. But the reality is sellers wanna be there because of how quickly they can start up. A lot of, a lot of sellers can go from idea to actual product on the marketplace in, in under six weeks. I mean, some of the data that came out of Marketplace Pulse is absolutely staggering uh, of how little capital is invested as well as speed to market that, that a seller can can affect, affect their business. Right. There's a couple of things that I think you both uh, you harped on that I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit is the introduction to the space. Again, the bump that e-commerce saw across the board I think a lot of people are coming down off the high. We saw numbers from Cyber Monday uh, and Black Friday. And although most most reporting data was say across the board, numbers are down. Mm -hmm. But where numbers were trending before <laughs> 2020 happened versus where we are today, again, the bump was so significant. But if you follow the line and trajectory of where it was in growth, 15% year over year, mm -hmm. plus or minus or so, that we're still on pit e-commerce is still on pace for that traditional growth happenings, just that huge influx because, again, no one was in retail stores. They weren't, weren't waiting in line. Services were not open. A lot of that money shifted from the market as a whole 
and went into a small operation. I say small in in conjunction of all of retail shopping, went into what was still operating and that was e-commerce. So again, even though numbers might be down, I continuously tell people do not fret across the board. All there be shipping logistics issues, all sorts of other issues still on trend to where we were trajectory. Uh, our trajectory was going before COVID-19. So is, is that, is that a cause and a pause for concern that all of this, this swell of aggregation and businesses are growing and brands are being acquired on this sort of inflated, I, I would say if you're looking at the number and then there is that bump, everyone was selling at that peak and that bump and looking at numbers from there when they should have been looking at before and after that bump. Does that make sense? It does. Sure. So let, let, let's take, let's walk through that. So I think it's important for people to keep in, in mind what the global economy has been through over the course of the last two years. And we all know, I guess at a personal level, how challenging it's been, but to, to see uh, a shift in consumer spending from services, which in the U.S. is two-thirds of the economy, to almost exclusively goods is, is extremely abnormal, and it is uh, extremely disruptive, as we're seeing uh, play out in supply chains today still. So, so you, can't, you can't lock people down, shift consumer spending patterns to the extent that we've seen and then begin to normalize them and not expect continued disruptions through, you know, through e-com, through brick and mortar, through supply chains, et cetera. Um, so that's that's really what we're seeing is we're seeing now, hopefully on the back end of of the pandemic, although we believe that Omicron is is going to is going to play a little bit more of a significant part than people are, you know, ascribing to it now with respect to to everything. But when we do get on the back end of the pandemic and we continue to see these normalizations take place, you're going to continue to see, you know, bullwhip type of disruptions playing through that, through the economy, through e-commerce, through um, your personal consumption, retail sales in general, that are difficult or once in a lifetime events, difficult to manage through. So, so that, that's the context that you need to keep. And, you know, it's easy to to look at your year over year performance and say, wow, my year over year performance isn't what it should be. You know, I'm not growing the way, say, an aggregator would be, you know, expecting me to grow. However, <laughs> you know, the the market has been through convulsions with respect to spending patterns. And, you know, when you when you normalize PL to you know to reflect basically those broader trends. A lot of people are doing fine. A lot of people are actually doing better than expected. You know, so that's that's really the first thing to keep in mind is that we're still kind of going through that normalization process. The next thing is you're right, e-commerce is growing at 15 plus percent a year. And I would say that, you know, despite things normalizing back to trend, there is uh, a whole new demographic now that's been introduced to online shopping that is not going to go away. I mean, we 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 forced people that were a little bit older that, you know, were a little bit more traditional, perhaps in their spending patterns to shop on Amazon, to shop online. And a lot of that is going to be uh, sticky. It's it's going to stay. So I think that, you know, that is that's something that is probably going to for a while allow us to grow a little bit above pre pandemic trend. So, you know, so that that could that could suggest something a little bit higher than 15% yearly. And you know, with respect to aggregators investing in the space and seeing, you know, this type of volatility and the amount of money that's been raised, you know, they are they are raising money for a longer term play really. You know, they they see existing trends again if you normalize out what we saw over the last 2 years you're still seeing 15 plus a year in growth and that is um that is that's fantastic and you're still going to i think continue to see uh e-commerce grow insofar as um market share of total retail sales as well so so i i think that 
I think that it's it's difficult to take the last two years, which unfortunately this this industry is so new and the whole aggregator phenomenon is so new. It's difficult to take the, those two years and extrapolate any sort of um, any sort of new trend with confidence. I think it's probably better to just normalize back to where we were two and a half years ago and just assume that we probably grow at that or slightly above. Robbie, you want to say something? Yeah, not to that. If we're looking at the data, uh, e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales has actually declined. But I think the amazing thing is, despite comping those 40, 50% growth rates a year ago, e-commerce is actually still growing high single digits on a year over year basis. So we are definitely seeing that trend of increased consumption. And the fact that it's declining as a percentage of the mix, the mix was really depressed when we look back a year ago because you couldn't go to stores. So the base is higher. So I think it makes sense that, that it's declining. And, and I think the fact that it is able to grow despite comping 40, 50% up uh, is incredible and, and speaks to the sustainability uh, of the secular trend in e-commerce. Absolutely. And speaking of numbers, um, do you, does Global Wired Advisors expect the trends and valuations of brands to continue to rise? Or does it, it do you guys sub, expect and subject it to be more normalized in terms of uh, flattening out at a multiple, certain multiple? Because right now it's trending at, you know, I think it's doubled in the past year um, since it yeah. was, I think it's trending at four to 8% uh, EBITDA instead of where it was in end of 2019, early 2020, I think it was two to three yeah. X. Yeah, we, we've seen over the last two years a, a pretty aggressive expansion in acquisition multiples, no doubt. And a lot of that was really due to um, a bit of a land rush as, as aggregators were just getting going and raising a lot of money. We, we saw really a stampede into the space where brands, yeah, Brands were brands were acquired quite rapidly, and you know the point that we make in the report is that a lot of those brands were acquired using using debt. They were they were levered, and a lot of aggregator portfolios when when things started to normalize and kind of return to trend found themselves with less attractive investments than they had originally hoped for. Right, so. <clears throat> You're telling yeah, so, me not not everything they acquire is sunshine and rainbows, right? There, there's right. Some, there's some stinkers <laughs> right, in there. Exactly. Right. Just like just like three P sellers are are struggling a little bit. You know they, you know they might be struggling a little bit more because they, you know they applied leverage. They used debt to make a lot of acquisitions. You know. So, insofar now as as with respect to multiples and where we see them going forward, I think that that aggregators are going to be a, a bit more discriminating. They're going to be a bit pickier, you know, with respect to what they, what they acquire. I think, um, I think that, you know, because of kind of the land rush and a little bit of the hangover following the, the land rush, you, you're going to see, um, you're going to see a little bit more, let's just call it rigor applied to each acquisition and in due diligence ahead of each acquisition, which is, which is normal. I think also probably what you're going to see for, for the first half of 2022 is um, companies that, that did see year over year growth and that were able to basically perform better than, than trend. I think they're going to continue to enjoy um, multiples that are, you know, again, in that range that you that you mentioned, I think that that's going to be quite easy. I think for for folks that are seeing year over year declines, really kind of following what we refer to as the beta of the market in general, just kind of following where broader e-commerce, you know, is has been trending. I think they're going to see some multiple compression. I think that that's natural. I think that um, you know there is there is going to be the need to discount some of the growth that that these firms saw during the pandemic and i think that you know that that kind of next tier down is you know is going to be a little bit more challenging you know insofar as getting getting deals done but then when we get in the second half of next year i think that you start seeing year over year performance um improve and i think uh 
I think that also year-over-year comps improve as well. So, so then you you start seeing kind of that second tier, you know, that might be under a little bit of multiple compression. You start tra- trending back to you know where where the top tier is getting done in the first part of the year, you know, because again, you know, the seller X-ray shows you that there will be no slowdown in the amount of money coming into the space. So, so that's how we, that's how we see valuation kind of high level and kind of how it evolving, I guess, next year. Absolutely. I I think the, the thing to also think about too, and I'm assuming you would agree with this is that where brands are looking to acquire businesses, what they, what that mix looks like has also evolved over time. Um, I remember hearing everyone's, we only want Amazon brands. We only want operated through Amazon, albeit makes sense that that's where it makes sense to functionally operate through. There's that mix that's starting to skew towards CPG, being on Walmart, having a little bit more mix of a, there's more an establishment of a brand in terms of what that looks like. We saw deals come through in terms of comes with, uh, fulfillment centers or has their own warehousing. So it has all these different mixes as part of it. And I believe the one with seller X today included a brand acquisition as part of that race is being able to go after those higher shelf brands of operating on a global scale of having all these additional assets. Does the mix start to become more apparent of what they're shooting for more of the higher keep, keep building and shooting for those top 500 brands on Amazon, or are we going to start to see more chances being taken in terms of like, infrastructure factories um in terms of maybe product mix or just uh niching down within a category itself are we going to start to see this breaking apart instead of an agnostic approach yeah so i I think those are those are all good questions all good points the you know the the desire to um to continue to find economies of scale is going to continue for aggregators and that that really was the original thesis. When when aggregators started raising money and entered the space, the thesis was, hey, we're we're going to acquire as many brands as we can. We're going to try to find related brands. We're going to try to push together manufacturing sources, distribution sources, um, and again, squeeze economies of scale out of similar products. I, I think a lot of that wasn't really realized. I think you know, again, in the land rush phase of um, of the last two and a half years most aggregators ended up with just a, you know, a a mishmash of different brands that really, when you looked at them, you you couldn't really, you couldn't really find a lot of common threads where you could see economies of scale insofar as manufacturing or product development or anything like that. You know, so I I think that that is going to be a renewed push going forward. I I think that you are um, with scale, you're definitely going to see, you know, more folks in the space looking to vertically integrate into uh, the distribution business, into manufacturing, uh, probably into onshore manufacturing, given what is happening in in Asia, particularly in the Taiwan Strait. I think, you know, you're going to see more, you're more interest in having things that are closer to home with respect to being able to make things. So, so yeah, I, I think you're you're going to see the build out of a lot of um, frankly, a lot of the the bigger ideas that kind of got aggregators started over the course of the last year and a half, I think now with with billions of dollars of extra funding, you're probably going to see a lot more execution with respect to some of those ideas. Uh, maybe I'm going to ask Rob, and I think this would be a good uh, question for you. What was the most shocking statistic that you came across that that kind of like drew everything together for you? Was it Was it a a thesis that that you had before going into it and a number or numbers really pulled it all together for you. What, what was that? What was that light bulb moment for you when putting all this together? Yeah, I, I think there, there's a lot in here. Um, for me, it was just how big. It's not light reading guys. Like I'm, I'm telling you, like I, I, I'm, I'm going back, like I have to put it down, think about it, have a cup of coffee, really think about it and then come back to it. This is an in-depth look lots of graphs, lots of data points, which I appreciate. So I'm just going to put that out there for people like, oh, let me just look at the summary and, and think about it. No, this is in-depth knowledge. So uh, continue with that anyways. You know, and I appreciate those thoughts there. It's just there, how how well the third-party sellers have done on the Amazon platform, to me, going from 3% to 62 
that that is really just staggering and the ease at which a good idea can become a brand that that can resonate with the consumer uh is why we think that the that this phenomenon has actually got a lot of legs when i think about things that i'm personally buying there is a, a founder-run business uh can just capture the consumer in a way that um some bigger companies struggle to and, and so I think we're going to see strategic buyers buying some assets that, that are created on Amazon. And, and that could be the traditional um, brands that we buy at a Walmart, at, at a Target. It, it also will be aggregators who are going to purchase them. And there will be a bifurcation of aggregators who are successful at, at really scaling brands relative to others who are unsuccessful at, at, at selling the brands, but very good at, uh, at, at search engine optimization. But that isn't a sustainable business model, in my opinion. You've got to create something that that resonates and people want to go back and recommend and buy as opposed to um, paying the most amount of money to get uh, purchases up um, because that's that's not what any brand owner wants. They want to see their band their brand scale and, and scale very nicely, uh, whether it's in their hands or if they sell it to a third party. Is there is there going to be a less of going after those top one to two selling on Amazon and more of a maybe an adverse risk of shooting for the middle? And I say middle of there's more meat on the bones. If I if I acquire the number one selling pillow brand on Amazon for five years running, it's pretty pretty consistent, right? But year over year, I can't take that to another level, right? There's only one way to go. That's down. If it's ranked consistently at number one, and I'm putting my hat on growth. There's nothing you can do besides just driving more people to buy that. And that's not economies of scale. That is just simply saying there's more risk in that capacity than there is of opportunity. So do people look at a product or diversify where you're selling, right? Exactly. If you take it D to C or you take it into uh, because of your relationships into Walmart, you could meaningfully scale that up. And that, that was one of the things we tried to capture in our, a hypothetical look at at a brand is how do you kind of accelerate growth? Is it D to C? Is it kind of a new channel um, in retail? And and those are things which can, um, which I think really successful aggregators are going to use in their arsenal and, and expand, meaningfully expand where they're selling the product. Right. I'm a, I'm just gonna call BS on anyone who thinks that they can just only grow on Amazon. Again, there is growth happening mm-hmm. on Amazon. But again, when you acquire the top selling pet brand or a top selling uh, yoga pants or top selling kitchen get gadget, you can only take it so far unless you have draw more traffic and point it to that direction to be acquired on it. Or like you said, Rob, take it to a different vertical, whether that be retail shelves, storefronts, or direct to consumer, and then you're drawing driving outside traffic to it. I will be the first and from I'll be on that soapbox forever and saying, listen. That, that you, you're going to look at that risk reward tolerance, right? Is it, but going back to my original point, are you going to look at a great product? Doesn't have the capital, doesn't have the, just the scalability, or it's just so young right now where they're going to say, I'm going to catch it before it hits that rocket ship and it lights its fuel and it's going to be going sky high. That way we write it and we can capture all of that from uh, sales instead of buying it from the top and let's just keep it there. Does that make sense? Like there's two models there. Let's keep it at the top and ride that and try to drive it in different directions instead of maybe taking a chance on a, a really great product or brand that actually did the right thing. They just don't have the capital resources and background and take it to the next level. And that's where the aggregation model can really take something off. I think you summarized it really well there, Ryan. Because yeah. if you do find that brand that just needs the incremental capital, the scalability is huge. And, and that that is sometimes why it just makes a lot of sense for a third party seller to, to monetize their business because they've taken it as far as they can based on the capital that they have, as well as the time they want to allocate to running the business. Is it, yeah. will you see an incubation stage maybe evolve from the aggregation model? Because there, there's a lot of different ways I've seen this, right? Of you can, if you're a fan of sports, you become a farm system, right? Of you acquire all these different ecosystems. You have data at your disposal. You have a logistics system at your disposal and you capture those individuals or brands when they're young and they're infant before you can re- really reap the benefits. And then all of a sudden, then you 
then you make that investment to them. And then that it's almost like taking them to the major leagues, right? It's like, now you're ready. Like you're primed, you're 18 years old. You have a fireball, like you have a rocket arm, all these different things. And now we're going to introduce you to the market and then boom, take off. Um, it, do you see that more of an incubation stage maybe that's going to emerge from these models or is that too early to tell? Well, uh, you know, I, I think what you're seeing with Amazon kind of going back to the, you know, the first diagram that we, we talked through is the ability to launch and scale a brand is unprecedented. We've never seen it before in history. And the, the flip side of that is we, we have a lot of brands, you know, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing, you know, an, an immense acceleration in the number of brands that are that are coming to market primarily through the Amazon sales channel. And these brand life cycles are now much shorter than they were in the past. You know, a brand life cycle 10, 15 years ago could, could last a decade or longer. You know, you think Nike, Adidas, right? Now, those life cycles are very compressed. And I think that Amazon is a key brand incubator but really, the I, I think the, the way the way aggregators are viewing brand acquisition is similar to how venture capital views investments. You make a lot of investments, and then you know one, two, or three hit big. And when when you have a brand that that finds real permanence and and is able to to grow outside of the Amazon ecosystem, you know, potentially into brick and mortar, you know, obviously Shopify, Walmart, then you extend that brand life cycle, then you're seeing, you're seeing the brand life cycle that, you know, would normally apply get extended tremendously. And you have, you know, again, another, another leg of exponential growth. So, so I think that that is really the, you know, kind of the long-term idea behind brand acquisition and you know you're right i think there are going to be a lot of brands that do get big that are not going to be scalable beyond the Am amazon ecosystem but there are going to be some that you know that, that just view amazon as really the launch pad and i think that i think that if you're if you're building a consumer products company a multi-brand consumer products company that is, that's probably the view that you have is that you're going to eventually end up with, you know, two or three anchor brands that have been the result of years of investment in a, in a multitude of shorter cycled brands that, that just didn't, that just didn't stick. And I think that's, that's, that's really what we're going to see. I, I think that that ultimately, if you, if you want the tape forward, you know, say five years, you're going to see aggregators that have, you know, clearly become public, publicly traded companies. They are going to um, probably have a lot of different brands, a lot of, let's call them shorter cycle brands, and they're going to have two or three or four or five big hitters that, you know, everyone is going to recognize, I think, and they're going to be selling predominantly online, obviously. Right. Is there, Ryan, is it, yeah, go ahead, number one product that's selling on Amazon, and maybe it's plateaued out, but you're getting some really good cash flow from that product. And it's the million dollar question is, what do you do with that cash flow? You could invest it and incubate kind of like you had alluded to, or you could take that cash and you could continue buying more brands and kind of get those to skyrocket. So right. I think aggregators are going to take different tax and ultimately at some point in the future, we will have more publicly available data to judge kind of what the aggregator performance is. And we will see a bifurcation of some who are really successful um, at, at building brands, at, at, at using that cash flow very wisely and prudently and, and scaling further, and others who are not as successful. And clearly, we, there was a soft patch, which we alluded to over the summer, where um, you know, there was definitely pain in the space and, and pain is always amplified by leverage, just the way leverage enhances a return during an up market. If it's tough, you might be burning cash. Um, and that definitely does not feel good. No, I was going to say, I, I think like um, kind of in the last couple of minutes, I have you gentlemen on today um, with a future outlook. It almost feels like 
man, if this was not in a pandemic era, or maybe this is a result of it, would would we see this condense condension or condensed nature of which we know that some of people are going to miss their payments back to their financial inv investors? Uh, what I mean by that is maybe maybe it's my products were stuck in the ports, or maybe hey, we just bought one brand that is just not going to provide the returns we thought it would, and we have to somehow either consolidate or we have to sell off brands. Is that the model that you think, or like that's what's coming in the next iteration of this is either more people who are going to start gobbling up these brands. Again, we, we showed a massive list of brands that or companies that can acquire brands or are planning to do that. Is There's going to be a consolidation, we're assuming, correct, of, hey, they just can't sustain growth or at the rate of which they took money. Um, what, what's kind of that next future outlook if we had to put it on our futuristic cats and kind of tell the future, um, which we're all really good at, right? We're, we're all going to be hundred percent correct. Um, if we had to, if we had a guess in that nature, is it a lot? Is it a little bit, we're going to see, like you had said, Rob, five major players in the space after five years, or maybe it's people kind of like under the radar and we're just going to say consistent. What does that look like? Well, I, I think short term, you're going to see, <clears throat> you're going to see some consolidation in the space. I think that, you know, given the the normalization that we've we've talked about during the podcast and the likelihood that a lot of acquisitions were levered by aggregators, you're you're going to you're going to see a little bit of a, a cleanup phase. We think where some aggregators are probably going to have to merge with others. You're probably going to see some you know some trading of portfolio positions among aggregators. I think. Um, it's important to remember that the backdrop is still quite bullish. I think that, you know, going forward, money, as we've seen with the seller X capital raise, is going to continue to flood into the space, irrespective of normalization. And um, again, this is this is a point that we make in the report. Any any consolidation or you know or any you know near term trouble that say smaller aggregators were to run into, we think is just going to be a bump in the a bump in the road going forward. And with respect to the long-term view, what does the landscape look like? Well, I think, I think what you're going to see in, let's use five years as a, as a time horizon, I think you're going to see several aggregators that have gone public by that point in time, maybe more. And you're going to see a lot of firms right behind them that are in the process of working to go public. And the the beautiful thing about um, getting over the wall, so to speak, with a public security transaction first or in that first group is that when you see an uptick in valuation, you are you're at a point now where you can affect uh, acquisitions of other aggregators that haven't quite made it to the wall or up the wall yet, right? And I think you're going to see some of that as well, where you know the the people that are able to you know to to get public realize that increase in value that we spoke of are going to have tremendous ability to um, to look back into the space and you know and, and make acquisitions of other aggregators, which is going to lead to consolidation. I think, um, but probably again in five years, what you're going to see is three or four or five maybe. That are publicly traded, and you know a whole raft of other companies that are on the same runway, looking to affect the same trade. I think, um, you know, there's probably going to be no slowdown in the amount of money that's raised. Going back to um, to a question that you that you asked earlier, what was something that struck you as is particularly interesting or relevant when you were putting the report together? What what struck me was the the amount of money that's been raised over two years as quickly to affect really one trade, if you think about it. And we refer to this as, as Amazon platform arbitrage, which is buying 3P sellers, affecting change given internal economies of scale and seeing uh, a likely significant uptick in uh, top line and profitability. And to raise to raise that much money as as quickly as aggregators have raised to to in essence affect that trade 
is, you know, is 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 kind of fascinating, really. If you compare if you compare that that raise to say the hedge fund industry when it got started back in the '90s, it um, you know, it is it is very similar with respect to how quickly money is money is pouring in. Um, but with the case of hedge funds, there were you know, the, the investment landscape was much more diverse. There were so many different things that hedge funds in the early days were doing where, whereas here there's, there's effectively one, one trade, right. That's being, that's being contemplated. And I think there are obviously different iterations of that same trade and there, you know, there's a lot more of that one trade to do, but that's what, that's what struck me as kind of, is kind of interesting. And, you know, we point out in the report too, that there, there's a huge, you know, thing that isn't similar. And that's the fact that hedge funds were, were not looking to go public that, that here is the, is the principal reason for this, you know, for this opportunity, for this trade, if you will, is to, is to build the next publicly traded consumer products company that is focused almost exclusively on Amazon or DTC. Everyone wants a slice of the pie. And I know that you're at the top of the hour, but I wanted to give a final thought if you have one, but then also where can people learn more information? Because I know you guys are working on another research uh, that's supposed to be coming out in December. I was promised December or mid-December, so I'm looking at my clock in the next couple of weeks. Is that when we're going to expect more data, more reports coming out, or are we going to wait until after uh, into 2022, Rob? <laughs> we want to give everyone an early Christmas present. So Very uh, nice. We are, I like we are that. hard at work for the next product, and that's one of the beauties about research. There's always a next thing to do. Um, while you and Joe were talking there, I was actually running in, in my model, my, our aggregator capital raise model, and both of your comments kind of struck me. And we've basically already seen this where the largest, the top five aggregators have raised about 55% of the capital. The top 10 have raised 70% of the capital of that thir $13 billion that's been raised to date. And the other thing which I was thinking about is a typical CPG company, all right, if I'm thinking about a Smuckers, a Procter & Gamble, they've got a product which has been doing really well, but they realize they've taken that product as far as it can go. So they sell the product, you know, whether it's coffee, tea, a, a, a bag of chips, and someone else purchases it. That is very common in, in CPG and in retail. So to me, it makes total sense that aggregators would end up doing the same thing with the brands which either they've taken it to where their skill set can be or it just wasn't a good fit and they'd rather kind of either monetize their gains or cut their losses and redeploy that capital makes sense yeah there there's there's a lot to be known um but gentlemen best best place for people to find more information obviously that global wider advisors uh, com forward slash research i'm assuming so we'll have to like i'll have to keep that in my tab bar make sure I'm always getting pinged when new stuff is coming. But is there any other uh, last thoughts, Joe, you wanted to impart on the audience today of before the holidays? Sure. So our, our next uh, our next research piece is going to be on supply chains. And, you know, that'll be coming out here in, in the next uh, week or two. And um, we encourage everyone to to check it out. I think um, I think you'll find that it is it is equally rigorous as the the aggregator report and you know we're going to throw in there some additional insights that we think are going to be particularly relevant for 3p sellers going into next year amazing well thank you so much both for sharing just your insights and time again i know this is a lot of time equity that you're putting in um and the ability to find that data points obviously it's going to help the seller community it's going to help the business acquirer community but also just helping unique grow in self in general. So I'm excited. I love this upper trajectory. Another one likes it when the, everything's going down. Um, it was kind of a bummer to see uh, Black Friday and Q4, or I should say Black Friday, Cyber Monday numbers go down. I will say a percentage or two points across the board. That's a lot of money, but not that as much, not as bad as what I would have thought. But uh, I appreciate you both hopping on today. Now I would consider friends of the show. I feel like I'm going to have everyone in the office just stop by my podcast and, and hop on and give some insights. So if we have more people, you're going to have to email them to me over a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you both hopping. Have a great night and uh, we'll look for that next report next time. That sounds good. Thanks for having us on. Ryan. Ryan. Thank yep. you both. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Again, uh, for both of you guys for hopping on crossover commerce, we appreciate you guys stopping in my corner of the internet to just go over some research numbers. Again, I think data is super important in terms of making sure you understand where the business of 
economies of scale are going, it means if you're going to exit your business, potentially, if you're going to grow your business, where you can do that, make yourself more profitable when you do exit, all those things matter. So that being said, I'm Ryan Kerman. This is Crossover Commerce episode 195. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. We'll have another episode um, coming your way um, in my corner of the internet. Make sure you guys take care.